You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. 1 John chapter 4 is where we're going to hang out today. 1 John chapter 4. We are talking about the woke church. The woke church. And some of you are like, I didn't even know that that existed. Well, I'm calling it a church, this idea of woke, uh, because it is a battle for ideas. Today, we are going to be talking about ideas. Now, I have a naturally aggressive nature, okay? Maybe that's why I went into aviation. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I'd have to practice lots of grace as I'm speaking uh, just because of that. Uh, But what I would like to say is that today, I am going to be attacking ideas, not people, ideas. And in the words of my hero, Antonin Scalia, he said, I attack ideas. I don't attack people. There are many good people with some horrible ideas. And I'm probably going to offend some of you. I'm probably going to get you to wrestle a little bit with those ideas. And if you do get offended, if you get hurt, you can email me at jjdoring at aol.com. Uh, just kidding. That is the pastor's email address. Um, I'm Dyson115 at gmail.com. No, but seriously, like Jason said, not trying to offend anyone, attacking ideas, not people. And what I'm going to show here with the text today is that there are two ideas prevalent in the world. One is the world, the, the, the worldly ideas, and the other is the biblical ideas. And that's it. There's just two. And there's no crossover. And we are ruthless in this church about pursuing the truth in love. The truth in love. So let's get to the text. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world." They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us, and he who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please allow your spirit, not the other spirits of the world, but your spirit to flow in this place. Break down the strongholds in our hearts, the strongholds of our thinking, so that your word, your mind, your thoughts could sink into our hearts and take root. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Let's look at the text here and just point out a few things right from the get-go. It says, do not believe in every spirit, but test the spirits. It does not say test the teacher. It does not say test the preacher. It says test the spirits. And that is because behind every idea, there is a spirit. Every idea has a spirit to it. We call this a presupposition. And people bring their presuppositions into every single argument. And oftentimes those revolve around what I call the big four, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. That's what theology really aims to answer. Origin, where am I from? Meaning, what's the purpose of my life? Morality, what is good? What is evil? And then destiny, where do I go when I die? And so it does say to test the spirits. There are two spirits that John lays out here in the text, and I'm going to call them a theology of the cross and the theology of the world. Theology of the cross and theology of the world. That world, that word world, is the Greek cosmos. Nothing spectacular there. What it means is the earth as a place of habitation the earth as a place of habitation. And it's used 24 times in the letters of John to describe a place of genuine hostility to God. A place of genuine hostility to God. 24 times. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world. Chapter 3, verse 1, the world does not know God. Chapter 3, verse 13, the world hates you. Chapter 4, verse 1, the world is full of false prophets. This is that idea of the Antichrist. Now, don't go all Hollywood on me about the Antichrist, okay? Antichristos in the Greek, a person who is Antichrist, against Christ. Anyone who does not believe that Jesus is God in the flesh is an antichrist or has the spirit of antichrist operating within them. This includes that middle road, the nuanced, I believe in Jesus as men say to me in prison, whether they're Muslims or Buddhists or any other different belief system to which I always ask, which Jesus? Which Jesus are you talking about? Are you talking about the God-man, the Son incarnate, God in the flesh, walked the earth? Or is it the Jesus of the Quran? That's a very different Jesus. It's a very different Jesus. So we don't want to get blown up by this word antichrist. You are going to have, like me, members of your own family that have the spirit of the antichrist. And we love them. Gosh, that's what makes Thanksgiving dinner conversation, interesting. (laughs) Religion and politics, right? Now, five, chapter five, verse 19, the whole world is in the power of the evil one. Once again, I have to go to this dichotomy. Yes, there is a supernatural evil. We call him the devil. In modern Americans, we're like, man, I want to hear about that. Really? The devil? Is that where you're going? Didn't they use the devil in the Old Testament or the old times and pre-modern times to keep people scared and under control? Do we, haven't we evolved to the point where we don't have to talk about the devil? Well, that's just, first off, it's unbiblical. Second of all, it's illogical. Why is it logical to believe in supernatural good but not supernatural evil? So we do believe that there is a antichrist. We do believe that there is a devil. It's the power of the air. It is a veil that is cloaking the eyes of the people. And there's a cosmic struggle that is going on in the supernatural realm that we feel and is worked out in the earth today between good and evil. 
And John makes it clear that there are only two spirits, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You have the theology of cross, which is the spirit of truth, and the theology of the world, which is the spirit of error. If I am going to offend your thoughts today, it's that way, it's that idea that there is only a spirit of truth and there's only a spirit of error. But we have to do this. Theology of the cross, if you could bring that table up. Theology of the cross on my right calls the thing what it actually is. And the theology of the world calls evil good and good evil. This is the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 5.20. A theology of cross calls sin, sin. A theology of the world calls evil good and good evil. A theology of the world says, I can love who I want. Don't tell me that I can't love who I'm choosing to love. Theology of the world says, I can end the life of my child because it's my body. Do you see the difference here? A theology of the cross calls a thing a thing. It says this is sin. This is a disordered relationship. It's not how God has intended the world to operate. It's not how God has intended for you to be in a relationship these are very important ideas. A theology of the cross is God defined by himself in his word, and a theology of the world is God defined by my thoughts and my feelings. And so essentially what happens in a theology of the world is that you have a God who never confronts you, never opposes you, is always accepting of you and your thoughts and your feelings. And that's no God at all, that's Santa Claus. You get married to be confronted. <laughs> My wife is here at the early service. She's just like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Preach, brother. That's why you get married. She's there to point out sin issues in me. A woman or a spouse who never confronts you in a sin issue is a robot. And yet some people over here in the theology of the world have this type of God. Happy about who you are. Happy about the decisions you've made in your life. Happy about who you are loving. Just all about you. The gospel, this is the good news. The gospel of the theology of the cross is that man is inherently evil. Man is inherently evil. And the gospel of the world is that man, man is inherently good. So the theology of the world says that man is essentially good and that it's, that's the surroundings and it's the people and the past and the circumstances that have made man bad. Whereas the Bible says there is no one who does good. David says in Psalm 51, in sin I was conceived. You come out of the womb evil. And yet the difference between the theology of the world and theology of the cross is that the cross says, God says, I have figured out a way to make you right. And the theology of the cross basically says, I will create in you a clean heart. I will provide propitiation for your sins. The God-man comes on a cross and dies for you. In theology of the world, since mankind is not evil, since mankind is essentially good, then the different social programs and the different and more education and more money is how man is going to perfect himself. And then essentially the cross is completely removed from the theology. And so we have the quote from the late Reinhold Niebuhr who said, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. In a theology of the world, you don't even need a cross. 
because you're not doing anything wrong. Essentially, sin is removed. In a theology of the world, a church operating in the theology of the world says, come as you are, stay as you are. Come as you are, stay as you are. In a theology of the cross says, come as you are, die to yourself. Die to yourself. Die to your sin struggles. Look, church, we are a church in which we invite you in with your sin struggles. Whatever you're struggling with today, you are in the right spot. We accept you. We want you here. We accept you, but we will not celebrate sin. We will not celebrate sin. And one of the things I love about this church is that there's, a, there's an addiction, there's a recovery model within this church where people like myself, a recovering alcoholic, can come and say, look, I was jacked up and I was a sinner and I came in here and people loved on me and had the faith and the truth to point out to me, here is your issue. It's not a disease, it's sin. If you're here today, you're struggling with any type of sin issue, you're struggling with any type of sexual sin, you're in the right spot. You're in the right, right spot, amen? Because in a theology of the cross, you are going to bend to the word of God. Theology of the world, the word of God is gonna bend to you. You see the importance of this idea, these two different ideas, the theology of the cross and the theology of world are very important because I'm gonna now dig into what's called woke ideology. And I'm calling it the woke church because it is a movement complete with its own theology with adherents and disciples who are pushing this idea along. Um, I have a couple books I wanna share with you today. This is very important because you've had enough Netflix, okay? You need an eye. We all need to engage culture. We need to do more reading. And this is very important that you would engage culture and read some books that will help you to articulate the Christian worldview amidst the woke revolution. The first is Carl Truman's Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Carl Truman's Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Listen to this. The origins of this book lie in my curiosity about how and why a particular statement has come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful. The quotation, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. My grandfather died in 1994, less than 30 years ago, and yet, had he ever heard that sentence uttered in his presence, I have little doubt that he would have burst out laughing and considered it a piece of incoherent gibberish. And yet, Today, it is a sentence that many in our society regard as not only meaningful, but so significant that to deny it or question it in some way is to reveal oneself as stupid, immoral, or subject to yet another irrational phobia. So, brothers and sisters, it's so important today for us to think about the idea and ask those questions. Where did this idea come from? Why is this idea prized in our culture? He offers this idea uh, to chart how the sources of the self, because that's what this is all about, the identity, how the sources of the self, how we find our identity has changed through time. And I'm gonna summarize this up here in about five minutes. So if you're a philosophy major, grace please, okay? 2,000 years into this neatly organized idea about 
the self and how we find identity in the self. The first thought is the political man. And the political man is an ideal of thought of Plato or Aristotle, where an individual finds his or her identity in the activities he or she engages in the public life, the Oropagus, at that time, immersed in community life. This is ancient Rome. Religious man gives way to, or correction, political man gives way to religious man. And now religious man, we're in the Middle Ages here and a person finds his or her identity or source of self in attending religious activities, the mass, pilgrimages, the sacraments. Religious man gives way to economic man. Economic man finds his or her source of identity in the the job trade, in earning an income. And then finally, and folks, greatly oversimplified, oversimplified, but the fourth is the most important, the fourth category, the psychological man, because that's where we are today. A psychological man is an individual that finds his sense of self not so much in outward-directed activities, but inward, internally. What are my, my feelings? What are my thoughts? Those are my truest identity. This is finding yourself. This is my lived experience. And the irony is that it has hit the church. We have become psychologized. We are also, let me give you an example. The economic man, my grandfather, worked at Pabst Blue Ribbon, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. George B.C., that's George before Christ, used to drink that stuff. It was horrid. But he worked in a factory. And if I were to go up to him and say, hey, Grandpa, did you find your work fulfilling? I don't know exactly what he'd say. He'd be like, what the heck are you talking about? fulfilling. I provided for my wife, your mother. I provided for my child. My job was fulfilling because it allowed me to provide for my family. And yet today, psychological man, if I ask young people, did you find your work fulfilling? You know immediately what I'm talking about because that's what you want. You want work that's fulfilling. You want to know that you're serving a purpose. Everything is about you and what can, how you can better make your meaning, make your mark, all those ideas, it's psychologized. Does that make sense? It's hit the church in a number of different ways. Your career, how are you going to find your identity with what you do? It's a very dangerous thing that we ask our kids. What do you want to be when you grow up? As if what you do is your identity. It helps, it hits us in marriage. Psychologized idea moves into marriage because we say, I want someone who will make me happy. And there's this idea that there's this person out there who's just going to fulfill you. It's almost like a savior individual who's going to fulfill you, meet all your needs, and then when it doesn't happen, irreconcilable differences. The vows in a wedding are about future promises. I promise to love you. I promise to be by your side through sickness and in health. They're future promises. And a person who is just interested in happiness in themselves, what they're really going to say is, I will be with you as long as you're making me happy, as long as you maintain your figure, go easy on the carbs, as long as you make me happy, fulfill me. It's totally different. But the psychology still comes in. Because I'll hear Christians saying that we are considering a divorce for irreconcilable differences. There are no irreconcilable differences. If you believe in the cross, you have been reconciled to God. 
And so you can only work through your issues. Save abuse, which I'm not going to get into. Can't have do that on a, on a ticker. All right. Here's the irony as well. In expressive individualism, this is what this is idea, this psychological man, this expressive individualism where you dig deep within yourself, you search your deepest feelings, and that becomes who you are. You say, that's my identity. What you see is people saying, or a person, a young person in particular, that's who I work with, will say, I finally told my parents who I really was. And they blast that out on Facebook and social media, and everyone's like, yay, you finally did it, you did it, you're the one. So the irony is that you have to still find your identity in community with people. What they're looking for is that support from a community, that affirmation from someone. <clears throat> so how did woke become a part of this? How did woke become a part of this, this idea of woke? Woke is just critical theory applied. Critical theory is something that's rooted in Marxism. It came to us from Germany, where all really good ideas come from. Uh, and it basically came to us from Germany, post-enlightenment. Human reason is number one. That's how you determine whether something's true or false is by human reason. And critical theory came and said there has to be a confrontation all the way down to the foundation. A confrontation all the way down to the foundation. I keep going down, that's why they call it deconstruction. You deconstruct the social structures of the time, the power structures, politics, government, religion, art, media, has to be examined critically, forcefully, to determine where the oppression occurs into which different groups of minorities does the oppression occur, and sometimes that problem has to be exaggerated to the point where we have to find certain oppressive structures or ideas. And so critical, critical theory or woke ideology a person who is woke is a person who can look at a structure or a socioeconomic power structure and point out where the oppression is occurring. And there's a whole new set of language with this revolution. Terms are redefined. People are categorized by gender, racial, sexuality into these different groups because there's power in words. Oppressed people groups are categorized, as I said, by race, gender, sexuality. There are new words, cisgender, heteronormativity, cultural appropriation, intersexuality, marginalization. And for all these new ideas, there are new identities. With the new identity groups, since they are, identities are defined by my feelings, there's no end to the number of groups that are out there. 2009, it was LGBTQ. 2014 was LGBTQAIEP. Now, currently, it's just LGBTQIA+, because it goes on for over 60 different categories because my feelings determine who I am. Therefore, there are that many different categories. You have to make a new category every time someone decides within themselves in this highly psychological state who they are and what they are, who they want to love, and what gender they want to be. Terms like tolerance have been changed. Tolerance used to mean you can have strongly held, non-negotiable non beliefs 
and we would discuss them. You have a right to your strongly held non-negotiable beliefs. I have a right to my strongly held non-negotiable beliefs. As Voltaire said, I disagree with what you have to say wholeheartedly, but I defend to the death your right to say it. That's the old form of tolerance. The new form of tolerance is you can only have the culturally appropriate strong ideas. You cannot have any strong ideas that are against the current media narrative. Alan Bloom uh, wrote a book called The uh, Closing of the American Mind. He was writing in the 50s from a liberal institution. This is what he said. The only virtue that matters today, this is the 50s, the only virtue that matters today is openness. Openness. One must be open to all kinds of people, all kinds of lifestyles, all kinds of ideologies. There is no enemy other than the person that is not open. And then harm is redefined. Harm used to mean bodily injury, injury to property. But since we are now dealing in the era of the psychological man, harm can be an attack against my feelings, thoughts. And so you could cause psychological harm to a person. And the institutions are all embracing this, of course. That's why we have safe spaces for a person who hears something that goes against their own identity group, and they can run to a spot where their ideas and thoughts don't have to be challenged to be then safe in a room that is enclosed with some furry animals and some chocolate and some soothing music. Do you see how this is all moving here? Uh, <clears throat> but why are some groups prized over others? Why are some groups prized? It, 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 it's a tenant of woke theory. The oppressed, the oppressed people groups, based off of their identity, are prized. And remember, we are speaking of not practices, but individuals in this woke idea. You're not attacking. We believe, we would believe in a Christian mindset that we are attacking an idea. But in woke ideology, you are attacking a person because that's who they have claimed that they are. So an identity must be publicly acknowledged and celebrated. Uh, let's look at how this has changed. Obergefell versus Hodges, 2015. Supreme Court case that legalized same-sex marriage. And the argument at the time was, who cares what people do in the privacy of their homes? Who cares? That's fine what they do in the privacy of their homes. But what happened somewhere along the way, it became that couple not only needs to be able to buy a wedding cake from a baker in town, they need to be able to buy a wedding cake from every single baker in town. And any baker that then rejects that idea has a lawsuit waiting for them. That's because of the woke revolution. It's because this ideology that has taken the word tolerance and changed it to intolerance. It's really the intolerance of tolerance. You can have your strongly held ideas, but you can't bring them into the public square. You can't bring those strongly held non-negotiable ideas into the public square. Incidentally, usually what I hear too is that I don't like your dogma, I don't like your dogmatics. Dogmatics, dogmatics are non-negotiable 
strongly held beliefs. And a person comes up to me and says, you know, you Christians, you're all the same. You shouldn't be bringing your ideas into the public square. You shouldn't be trying to convert people to Jesus Christ and bringing us your morality. But that right there is a dogmatic claim. And they're essentially telling me that, that I am supposed to act and speak a certain way. It's still a dogmatic truth claim. All right, so let's return now to the text. 1 John 4, what he says is to test the spirits. I'm gonna give you two tests to determine if an idea is from the cross or if it's from the world. But first, let me just share this with you, this idea. Um, California Gold Rush, 1850s. In 1848, John Marshall discovered gold in Sutter Hill. And basically, there was a mass transit to California. It's a California Gold Rush. You've heard of this before, probably. Mass transit to California. 75,000 traveled by land, 40,000 by sea. And uh, as they traveled to their destinations, they hit San Francisco. They went out from San Francisco at about 150 mile radius. And prospectors quickly learned that not every piece of gold that they found was really gold. There are two tests to determine whether the gold was real gold. One is that you bite on it. And since gold is softer than uh, rock, you'll break a tooth if it's not gold. Right? So the American Dental Association was like, hey guys, let's not do that anymore. And they took, they said, push the, 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 the gold against something white, like ceramic. And if the, if the leftover, if the remnant is gold, then that's gold. If it's not, it's not gold. What they quickly found out was that they were having to choose or, or, or test between uh, gold and what was looked like gold. It looked identical to gold, but it was actually iron pyrite. Iron pyrite. And that became known as fool's gold. Looked identical. But that's where the term fool's gold comes from. Guys, the big idea here is that not everything that glitters is gold. What was said in California in the 1850s is true for the church today. Not everything that glitters is gold. There are churches here on the island that are embracing the theology of the world. And in the name or the idea or the declaration of love are saying, come in with your sin issue, stay exactly as you are. God loves you just the way you are. And what they're doing is not saying that God is love. What they're saying is love is God. They're taking, and if you've ever done this, I've done this, you imagine the attributes of God on him and say, God is love, what you're actually saying is that love is God. So these tests are incredibly important. We have the theology of the cross, again, the theology of the world, a theology of cross, according to the text, says, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the God-man, that is test number one. If you believe that Jesus Christ is a moral teacher, that's the theology of the world. Jesus Christ is just a moral teacher, theology of the world. Is he the God-man? 1 John 2, 22, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That's the first test. 
The second test for the theology of the cross is that you are rejected by the world. You're rejected by the world. John 15, 18 says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. You will be hated. It is not celebrated by the world. It is in fact rejected by the world. A theology of the world is celebrated. It's celebrated. This church will not do ministry with a church that is belonging to a theology of the world. It will not. Think about the danger of biblical counseling. I got a brother downtown that says that 20 years ago, the people who came to him to seek counseling were primarily married couples, and it was the, the men asking, how can I have more intimacy with my wife? You hear me? How can I have more intimacy with my wife? That shifted about 10 to 15 years ago to the women coming and saying, how can I have more intimacy with my husband? You say, how the heck is that? Pornography became readily available. And now it's shifted yet again where he has all these young kids coming to him saying, I don't know what I am. I don't know who I love. Am I a boy? Am I a girl? It's like the confusion is rampant because we're allowing that in the church. And that is why this church will never operate with another church that operates through a theology of the world. It's dangerous. These ideas are crushing our young people. I'm going to now, very carefully, as we have now laid the ground for the woke ideology, discuss two woke movements, Black Lives Matter and LGBTQ. And I'm gonna again ask you for your grace as we talk through ideas. Remember, I'm talking through ideas. And I want to test the spirits and know, is this from God or is this demonic? Is it from the world? Is it from the prince of the power of the air? So let me talk about the Church of Black Lives Matter. I have called it a church because it has its own doctrine, teaching, dogma, non-negotiable beliefs, disciples and adherents who follow these doctrines and dogma, so it is a church. It has its own theology. It has its own eschatology, its own soteriology, its own homardiology, and its own pneumatology. Those are big words, but they're actually pretty simple. Eschatology, end times. Soteriology, salvation. How am I saved? Homardiology, sin. What's the problem with mankind? And then pneumatology, spirit. What is the spirit? It's very popular today to say, I'm spiritual. I'm a spiritual person. Like, what spirit are you talking about? So incredibly important to gauge which spirit they're referring to. So let's read through the Black Lives Matter manifesto. Everything that I am pulling from is the website, all right? Folks, I want to make sure that we're very clear on that. Together, we demand an end to the wars against black people. We demand that the government repair the harm that has, done, has been done to black communities in the form of reparations and targeted long-term investments. We also demand a defunding of the systems and institutions that criminalize and cage us. This document articulates our vision of a fundamentally different world. Hear that, a fundamentally different world. 
However, we recognize the need to include policies that address the immediate suffering of black people. These policies, while less transformational, are necessary to address the current material conditions of our people and will better equip us to win the world we demand and deserve. So right off the bat, we have, again, ideas, people. Racism exists. I'm not going there. I am simply looking at the idea behind this movement. It has an eschatology. It has the belief of a new world now. And believers in Jesus Christ, we are holding for the consummation of Jesus Christ's return when he will bring a new heaven and a new earth. It's not gonna come from any movement. It's gonna come from Jesus Christ coming back to the earth. has its own soteriology. Soteriology is salvation. How is a brother or sister saved? By achieving a different world, according to the Black Lives Matter manifesto. What they're offering is a type of societal salvation. A self-deliverance from this current temporal world to a new, equally temporal world in which racism doesn't exist. Sin doesn't exist. In the Bible, you are saved from sin through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. It has its own homotiology. This is the idea of sin. The problem. What is the problem? What is the sin issue? I'm the problem. As G.K. Chesterton said, what is the problem with the world? And he wrote one answer back. Me, I'm the problem. We're all the problem. Sin is the problem. And yet Black Lives Matter is basically saying that uh, on the basis of my ethnicity, I'm sinless, guiltless, and righteous because of the past that has occurred to me. I'm the problem, but not the way that Black Lives Matter says that I'm the problem. I'm the problem because of sin. We are all the problem. Psalm 51.5, in sin, my mother conceived me. Pneumatology, again, spirit, this is big. Hear this, please, from the Religion News Service, June 15th, 2020. Black Lives Matter is a spiritual movement, says Patrice Coulors, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter. She says, part of our calling as people who do this work for black lives is to lift our people up, both in their living but also in their death. The need to lift our people up feels so incredibly spirit-driven to me. So praying and pouring libations during demonstration as part of the ritual, people cite the names of the people taken by state violence before their time. And this is what she says. Ancestors are now being called back to animate their own injustice. Ancestors are being called back. There's a reason that they say, say her name or say his name. It's to evoke the spirit of the individual to come back and then demand justice. Folks, test the ideas. Test the ideas. Black Lives Matter, as an ideology, does not fit under the theology of the cross. It is its own separate worldview. 
complete with an idea for salvation and the end times. So much more I'd love to say about that, but I don't really feel appropriate. At this point, this is a whole other sermon what the church's response is to this. And it is. And my mentor right now, his name's Dr. Allen, and, and he's the one that I call for these issues, an African-American. And he, every time he talks about this, he says, white evangelicals get it wrong. White evangelicals get it wrong. So I want to rest in that for a moment and remind ourselves that the race, racism is a problem. But it's not a problem the way that Black Lives Matter has defined it. It's a problem in the way that Martin Luther King has defined it. When people are judged by their skin color instead of the content of their character. In fact, I would argue that racism is actually not the problem. It's ethnic hatred. Because according to the book Genesis, we are all one race. Multiple ethnicities. And in the end times, in the book of Revelation, there is a multitude of tribes gathered together, welcoming Jesus at his return. In the meantime, we're going to get a lot wrong in the way that we respond to this. But this issue does need to be discussed. It does need to be confronted. And it's in the church. So we do need to speak about it. But be careful embracing black lives matter. Those are not three innocuous words. It is an entire world view. Let's talk a little bit about how we respond um, and touch on the church of LGBTQ, if I could. Now, this summer, we've talked a ton about sexual ethics, so I'm not going to dig too much into what the Bible says about homosexuality, same-sex marriage, gender confusion. Um, what I would like to talk to is how to approach LGBTQ. So for this book, you got homework, you got two books. This book is Rosaria Butterfield's The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Rosaria Butterfield was a radical tenured professor at Syracuse University. Her specialty was queer theory. That's critical gender theory. That's all that is. Again, all of the woke movement takes the applied turn from critical theory. She wrote about how she wrote an, uh, an article that was kind of scathing to a person that had posted a, an article about biblical defense of marriage, marriage between a man and a woman. And she wrote a scathing response to that Christian's critique. Sound familiar? All right. And so she then began to get lots of hate mail from Christians. There's a lesson to be learned here because she writes that in this batch of hate mail, I also received a letter from Pastor Ken Smith, then pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquiring letter. Did you hear that? Kind and inquiring. You don't need to fight these battles, church. There's an idea here about how we approach people that have different ideas than ours. It was a kind and inquiring letter. It encouraged me to explore the kind of questions I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you are right? 
Do you believe in God? He did not argue with my article. He didn't argue. You don't have to defend the truth claims. Ask questions. He didn't argue with my article. He asked me to explore and defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. The letter invited, listen to this, the letter invited me to call its author and to discuss these ideas more fully. It was the kindest letter of opposition that I had ever received. God, the lessons there for us are paramount. How do we respond to people struggling with different sins? They may not even know that they're struggling. We don't need to send angry emails. We don't need to post angry retorts. We can ask questions. We could invite them into our house. Imagine that. And that's what he did. And what Rosaria Butterfield said was that the word of God got to be bigger inside me than I. God does the changing. You don't need to battle for Christ. You need to battle for people. The first response, this is how it works. I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. You are an egotistical, cisgender, privileged male that needs to repent. Can we talk about that? Do you want to meet for some coffee? Why don't you come over to my house? Let's talk through this. So you don't keep this volley going back and forth. We love people. We embrace people, warts and all. If you are struggling with any type of sexual or gender identity issue, come here, come to the church, talk to us. Hear the word of God. It's the word of God that's gonna change you. I was working with a young girl, working at a detention center, 15 years old. She's convinced that she's a lesbian, convinced. And I spent lots of time, just sweetheart, just getting to know her. Tell me about you. Tell me about your family. Tell me this. Tell me that. It took a long time before I was able to say, sweetheart, just please, please read this. Like, don't think for a moment about what people have told you in the community, what your friends tell you. Just block all that out for a second. Just read this text. If God were to tell you that you're living a way he doesn't want you to live, how would he do it? She's like, well, he'd probably use his word. Yeah, that's why I love kids. The boundaries are broken still. They still can hear a little bit about through the cultural noise. So I gave her Romans 1. And she read, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. She said, I've been living a lie this whole time. Yeah. That's all, that was it. Holy Spirit did the rest, folks. The Holy Spirit does the rest. And through care and concern and comfort, we allow God's word to confront people. Does that make sense? Am I tracking with you guys? You do not need to fight the battles. The biggest 
hurdle we face here in church is to say, come, we accept you with one arm open, come and hear the truth of the gospel. We love you, we accept you, we accept everyone. We don't approve of behavior that God does not approve of. Let's work through this. Let's talk about this. So what is our response? I'm going to leave you with five, actually four ideas. No, there are five. About how to respond to the woke church, the woke ideology. First, Jesus followers should not receive any doctrine thoughtlessly or uncritically. We are thinking believers. We want to test the spirits. You don't want to rely on your feelings for how God operates. I just feel like God wouldn't do that. God's a God of love. He wouldn't send those people to hell. Psalm 50, 21, you thought I was just like you, God says to David. Look at me, folks. Your feelings are often wrong and often betray you. Amen? God is bigger than your feelings. Let the word of God bend your feelings and thoughts to his plan, not the other way around. Jesus' followers should expect to be hated. Jesus' followers should expect to be hated. 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. The world is going to hate you. These are uncomfortable ideas. And now, in an age when a person's idea is their identity, they're going to be convinced you're attacking them when, in effect, you're attacking an idea. So it's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly hard. We are to suffer wisely, 4 Peter 4.15. This one is near and dear to my heart. Peter says... Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Do not suffer as a troublesome meddler. Here's what this means. The, the next one is, is kind of nuances this point. You are not out to win an argument. You are not out to win an argument. So this is how this, this, is how this unfolds. Uh, post, I believe marriage is between a man and a woman, and then boom, it starts coming. Nasty, 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 nasty responses, Instagram, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. And then you're like, oh, man, suffering for Christ. Yep. The cross I bear. I'm glad you're laughing because you're not suffering for Christ. You're suffering because you're being a jerk. Make sure you notice the difference there. Yes, we are going to suffer for Christ, but you're Internet battles are not you suffering for Christ. Christ does not need you. Jesus does not need you to win his battles. The best thing a seminary professor once said to me, second year, was, George, God doesn't need you to fulfill his plans. God doesn't need you either to fulfill his plans. Look at me. You're not Holy Spirit Junior. <laughs> You're not. Isn't that great news? Breathe out. Breathe out, yeah. Because you can now embrace people as people made in the image of God and invite people into your home. How many of you have dear 
friends that are in a same-sex relationship or are struggling with gender identity, or maybe they're convinced they're not struggling because they've embraced it. How many of you have those friends? How many of you have African-American brothers and sisters that you can call into your home and ask them about their experiences in the past in church? You should. You should. They should be regular visitors to your home, which as Jason alluded to in the offering is not yours, it's God meant to do his will and his purpose. You invite people over for dinner and ask them about their worldview and you show them the love of Jesus Christ, a love which says, I accept you, but I don't always approve of your behavior. And then we are reminded that it's the Holy Spirit that changes people. The Holy Spirit changes people. Philippians 2.13, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is who? God, who is at work in you. God is at work in you as he is in work with whoever you come across that is made in the image of God. And then what changes them? His word. Sanctify them in your truth, John 17, 17. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the most offensive statement. Through time, it has been the most offensive statement. It says on one hand, you are more wicked than you ever possibly knew. You are more wicked than you ever possibly knew. And yet you are more loved than you could ever possibly imagine. More love than you ever could possibly imagine. So loved, in fact, that God the Father sent God the Son to earth to be sacrificed for you and your mess. He comes to make us new. Whatever your sin issue is today, I don't care. I really don't. I'm glad you're here. Because you can hear how God says, what God says his plan is for your life and for your flourishing. So whatever it is, lay it out right now before the Lord. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, this idea that Jesus says to remember me, come to the table. Look at the sacrifice that has been laid here for you to create in you a clean heart, to renew a steadfast spirit within you is all right here in the table. It says, I am a mess on my own. I can't fix myself. I think things I shouldn't think. Everything about me is jacked up. But you, God, you promise to create in me a new heart. You have removed my sins as far from me as the east is from the west, forever forgotten. If you believe that, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the God-man who has sacrificed for your sins, past, present, and future, this table is for you. This is not the table of Galveston Bible Church, this is the table of Jesus Christ. If you're not sure what that means, if you're still kind of thinking about this and, and, and maybe you're in this ideology where you are justifying the way that you are living and you know that it's in contradiction to the way that God wants you to live, I wanna ask you to just hang in your seats. 
I want to ask you to hang in your seats and grab me after the service so we can talk about this. There's eternal consequences. God loves you enough to let you make your own decision. That's how much he loves you. He's going to let you have what you want. Jason's going to come up here in a minute to talk about what these elements mean. Ladies and gentlemen, in the meantime, please think about the ideas we've talked about today. Eternity is at stake. Amen?